Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of Lit AF with me, your host, Sarah Cohan. As always, I'm so excited to be back this week, serving up a spiritual and personal growth conversations. That's right. <laughs> That's my new jingle for Lit AF. I hope you liked it. <laughs> So this week I have an amazing guest. Her name is Taryn Newton-Gill and she is an attachment coach. So we talk about my favorite thing, which is attachment style. And we get into all things across the spectrum of the attachment style. So we talk about how anxiety shows up in dismissive avoidance and how dismissive avoidant behavior shows up in anxious, preoccupied people. And then, of course, me being the fantastic fearful avoidant, recovering fearful avoidant that I am, we talk about how a lot of people actually think they're fearful avoidant when really they're more leaning to the anxious side. So, and then we also just talk about how attachment theory has really helped us heal ourselves and our relationships and our relationship to self, which is so cool. So that's why I always love having attachment style coaches on the show. So before I get into this interview with Taryn, as always, I just want to do my check-in. And this week, I want to talk about my grandma's memorial that I just attended last week. So my grandma passed actually last year, just from natural causes. And because of the pandemic, we were unable to gather as a family until just now. So it's kind of like a year and a year and three months later, we finally gathered a year and a half later. And it was such a beautiful, beautiful ceremony. It was so interesting. It was in my childhood church, which I haven't been to in a really long time. And even though I grew up in the church, I am very spiritual, but definitely not religious. And it was a little strange to attend an actual service for the burial. I didn't find the words in the service very comforting. They kind of felt like cold and rote and like plastic in a way. It just felt very like death is death and here we are, you know, and and I needed a little more like, you know, the bigger picture of life and death come together and how the spirit of my grandma will continue to live on in all of us and all of that stuff. So it was really interesting. But then we had a beautiful memorial and my grandma was really into music. And so is my mom and a lot of other members of my family. And so a lot of musical groups, including a barbershop quartet and then a women's barbershop quartet, I don't know if that is the same name, but it sounded good, performed. And then we had a gospel choir perform and a Dixieland band was kind of like the house band that played throughout the entire ceremony. It was just lovely and such a wonderful celebration of life. And so many people came from the church and the community. And it was so lovely to have so much support and just see my family. I haven't seen this side of the family in so long. And my grandma had six kids. So like there's a lot of family on that side. So it was just, it was really wonderful. And then I got to say a few words about her, which was so nice to have that opportunity. And <laughs> My public speaking skills coming out of COVID are real rusty. <laughs> I am finding it way more, I just put like way more pressure on myself. I don't know. It's like I haven't been around crowds of people. I haven't been, you know, performing in front of people, obviously, in a really long time. I'm performing for you here, but not like, you know, you're not in this room with me, even though I wish that you were, to be quite honest, that would be way more fun. I had to like do so much self-talk. I was so anxious afterwards. I had to like self-soothe for like a really long period of time. And normally in my performing days, that would just mean I would toss back a drink and talk with people about how it went. I no longer have those tools. So I'm making new tools, which is a lot of like checking in with myself, journaling. I like to give myself like a little hug when I notice that I'm having really, really negative self-talk. Just like give myself a little mental hug and be like, I know it's okay that you're saying those things to yourself because that is how you're programmed to do that. And we're working to be more positive, but this is how, you know, we speak to each other for now. Oh my God. <laughs> so much dialogue with myself. <laughs> Do you guys talk to yourself like this? Like, is it, is, am I, am I on the right track? 
I don't know. <laughs> I'm so curious, but it is one of my favorite things to give myself a little mental hug. What else for announcements? I am very excited to share. I think I've shared this before. I can't remember that I have a 15-minute comedy special up on my website that's all about my personal and spiritual growth healing. It's hilarious. It talks a lot about the different stages of the process, which obviously is never done, but I really hope that it gives you some solace on your own journey to know that you are not alone. <laughs> you're you're among the best of us that are also on this path. So it's super funny. I really hope you enjoy it. If you're interested in downloading it and watching it, it's free. You can find it on my website at sarahcohan.com forward slash comedy special. I think you know how to spell comedy special. I feel pretty good about that. So please check it out and let me know what you think. And truly, I hope that it brings you a little bit of peace because this journey ain't easy, but I wouldn't choose any other way. Am I right? Am I right? All right, that's it for my check-in and announcements. Now let's get to the interview with Taryn. Welcome to the show, Taryn Newton-Gill. I'm so excited to have you here. I am so excited to be here. Yeah, so Taryn is a love guide, a women's empowerment coach, and also the founder of Truer Love. And she weaves attachment theory into her work. And I'm just so excited to talk about that today. It's one of my absolute favorite topics. I mean, mine too. <laughs> so I, before we even like get into defining an attachment style, I just want to say that like learning my attachment style, really trying to get to the secure place in life. And I say get to because I think it's going to be a lifelong journey. It is. Yeah, it is. Thank you. Thank you. Like it has given me the most bang for my buck in terms of personal growth. And it's given me confidence. Like, it, you guys, I wouldn't even be here on this podcast if it weren't for attachment theory. So I just want to say that this work, like, that is why I keep having so many guests on the show to talk about attachment theory because I think it's just – it's that important and can be that impactful in anyone's personal growth journey. A hundred percent. I will echo that and say I wouldn't be on this podcast if it weren't for attachment theory. It's why I do everything I do because it completely changed my life and sense of understanding myself, understanding the people in my life, just like everything. It's amazing. Everything. That's amazing. I love it. Okay. So let's do like the, the two to five minute overview. What is attachment theory? Define the types, all that good stuff. Ah, yes. So attachment theory, basically, some people call it a science. I have read that some people don't technically consider it a science because it's a quote-unquote theory, but <laughs> it really is a scientific framework. It's based in science and in biology, but it's basically the study of how humans bond in intimate relationships, particularly between parent and child relationships, and then also in adult relationships. It began as a study between parent and children, and then was built upon and extended to adult relationships. So, and that was kind of radical at the time. I mean, the whole thing was radical. The man who started it, some people pronounce his name John Bowlby. I always learned it as John Bowlby, but he was all about the parent and child relationships. And he was super radical psychoanalyst back in the early 1900s who discovered this concept and kind of fleshed it out. And then later on, people realized it also applies to adult relationships. And so what that means when we're talking about how people bond, it's basically a relational science. So that's what I think makes it a little confusing for people because it's it's all based on how we relate to other people. And that's where the styles come from. And it's all about how comfortable we are being intimate and being vulnerable with other people. And so there's four different ways of relating to people. So secure people I always start with because they're kind of the way to understand it's like there's one, there's secure, and then there's three insecure types. So secure essentially means that the person is comfortable both giving and receiving love. They're more comfortable being vulnerable. Now, does it mean they're never, you know, uncomfortable being vulnerable? No, but it's really about consistency with attachment. So more often than not, they're more prone to feeling comfortable. 
And again, it's relational, so it depends who they're relating to. But by and large, they had caregivers who allowed them to express themselves, who acknowledged their needs. And so they felt it was safe to express those things. And on the flip side of that, insecure attachment styles likely had caregivers that had insecure attachments themselves. And so they didn't have as much comfort with certain levels of vulnerability. And the way they expressed that affected the child. So uh, for instance, you know, anxious attachment, that's one of the main attachment styles. And those styles, as the name goes, they tend to have a lot of anxiety. And that's usually because they had at least one inconsistent parent or caregiver who raised them. And so, you know, our attachment styles tend to develop, again, our primary style because they are malleable, which is something we can get into down the road. And so for anxious people, they have one inconsistent caregiver. And so that creates an anxiety in them because that person sometimes is emotionally available and sometimes is not. And so in that, not knowing if that caregiver will be available and what we mean by available is hear me, acknowledge me, meet my needs. If they have someone who's inconsistent, it means that they're not necessarily always putting our needs first. And then there's this fear of abandonment that they're not going to be there when we need them. And so it creates this anxiety. We're always waiting for that caregiver to not be emotionally available. And so oftentimes people who have anxious styles tend to have some avoidance in their caregiver because that avoidance created the anxiety, if that makes sense. So on the flip side of that, we have avoidant styles who are the opposite, right? They usually have at least a caregiver who is unavailable emotionally, like regularly unavailable. So a lot of times people who are avoidant have an absent parent or an abusive parent, something that made them feel that sharing at all wasn't safe. So whereas anxious people tend to have at least one secure caregiver, so they they know what it feels like to be vulnerable and share, so they want to, but then it's not there, so it creates anxiety. The avoidant person didn't feel they had a safe space to go to, so they learned to self-soothe and keep it to themselves, so they don't trust to share. Those are the two dominant styles, essentially. And then fearful avoidant is a combo And it's the special style because it is a combo of those two styles. It's actually a very much a smaller percent of the population. About 30% of people are avoidant. About 25% of them are anxious. 50% are actually secure, which I know is shocking. And I did get these statistics from the book Attached, everybody knows. And then about 3 to 5% of people are fearful avoidant. So that means that they use both strategies. And what we mean by strategies is there's activating strategies and deactivating strategies. Activating strategies make you closer to someone. Deactivating make you pull away. So with the fearful avoidant person, they go back and forth because they generally had two inconsistent caregivers. So they have this core wound of betrayal because they never knew if they could count on what they were feeling. You know, that a parent was there, but then the next time they're there, they're not. And so that's consistently inconsistent, which is what makes them known for being very, um, they oscillate a lot. And there's a lot of chaos in their feelings and relationships because of that. There's never a security there. So they might feel really like they want to be close at one minute, but as soon as they feel not close or as soon as they feel afraid, they swing to this avoidance side. And I can get more into what that really means when we say someone's avoidant, because there's also something called protest behavior, which isn't the same thing as avoidance. But a lot of times people think that it's avoidance and it's a little bit different. I'm excited to talk about that. I love that. So how did you find attachment theory? To be honest, I heard the term and I heard about attachment styles when I was listening to podcasts. But they always would like throw out the term attachment style, but no one ever really went in depth with it. So I remember being intrigued by it, but not really understanding what it meant. And then I was a single person for a long time and I was in therapy, not for that specifically, just I started going to therapy because I thought it'd be a healthy thing to do a few years ago. I was single and I was dating a lot and I was constantly attracted to what I didn't realize then was avoidant partners. And I would get stuck in these cycles. And my therapist, bless her soul, I love her, 
you know, said, yeah, that's your attachment style. And I was like, hold up. <laughs> what does that mean? Because I've heard it. I need to know what this means. And now that I know it's specifically, you know, affecting my dating life, like you got to tell me what this is. And so she suggested I read the book Attached. And that's where I started learning about it. And it was like, everything suddenly made sense, like light bulbs going off. Like I read that book so quickly. I took all the quizzes. I was obsessed. And that knowledge is really what helped me understand that my husband, when I met him, was secure. It really made me realize, okay, because, you know, anxious people, I'm anxious, tend to not feel super attracted to secure people at first because we're not used to that feeling. And so there were always guys who were into me, that, you know, that feeling of like everyone I want is not into me, you know, mm-hmm. and vice versa. Like everyone who's into me, I'm not into. That's a lot of the reason why, which is why, you know, attachment explains so much. So my husband, actually, we dated for about six weeks and I ended things with him because he was calling me beautiful and he was being nice to me and he was showing up and he was like just there. And I'm like, you know, I had no anxiety. I thought that that anxiety meant I liked people. You know, when they say butterflies are in your stomach, that's actually a form of anxiety. So, you know, it's your nervous or your parasympathetic nervous system is you know, stress. That's why we feel those before we like give a speech, for instance, you know, or something important. So I ended things with him and went back to dating my avoidant people. And then I was like, I can't take this anymore with the avoidant person. Stop talking to him. But I couldn't stop thinking about my husband. Like I just had this intuitive voice being like, he'd be good for you. You know, just like whispering to me, he'd be good he's for boring, you. but he's good for you. And, that, he might not be boring. I'm just saying. Right. I was going to say like, that's the funny thing is like when I'm with him, I'm not, I was never bored. Like our conversation flowed. We still laugh at all the same places in TV shows and movies. We, you know, like he appreciated how I dressed. He like understood me in a way that I feel like no one ever saw and understood me in the way I wanted to be. And yet I didn't feel nervous with him. And so I thought I wasn't into him, you know. And so it took me not being with him and missing him and realizing like he is a secure person, you know, for me to follow up with him. And luckily, you know, he took me back. Oh, I love that so much. And husband, I'm not saying you're boring. I just mean you're <laughs> it's boring. He knows you're, it's nervous. He knows I, aroused. <laughs> he, he's heard me say this so many times. Like I've that. had to tell him that, like, babe, you know I'm not calling you boring on all these podcasts, <laughs> right? Um But it's a thing. It's a thing. And so I want people to know about it. It's such a thing. I like I look back and laugh on probably all the secure people that I dated and just like immediately cast aside. I'm like, nope, you're not interesting enough to me, which is like so sad. Like, so sorry. (laughs) Yeah. And in dating culture, we also don't really give people a lot of a chance. You know, we like write people off very quickly. So even if they were more interesting, we didn't have an opportunity to get to know them. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That's so fascinating. So your attachment style is anxious. Talk to us a little bit about how you started to heal that attachment style. So healing attachments really interesting. There's several ways to go about it. There's certain therapies you can do. I didn't do those. The thing is, anxious types specifically are most similar to secure because they had that secure parent usually. So anxious types and secure people go really well together. I mean, secure is good with pretty much any other style, but specifically anxious people tend to evolve more into being more secure when they have more secure relationships. So I credit my husband a lot with my security because he provided me that secure base to start that process. And it makes sense if you think about it like in terms of child rearing, when you think about kids feel more secure, like they're dependent on you the first couple years of life, right? They're totally dependent on you. But as they become a toddler and they start to crawl and they start to walk, there's like a period of child development when they go and start to explore. And you'll notice that when kids go start to explore, they always want to make sure they know where their parent is, right? So that they know they have this secure base to go back to, but that knowledge makes it so that they can then go and feel secure themselves. So that's how it works too in adult relationships. And so 
I think with my husband, because he was secure, because he was reassuring anytime I had an anxiety, I felt safe enough with him to bring it up. Slowly but surely, I started to develop more secure feelings. Now, I still identify as someone who's anxious because primarily I am more secure now, I think, in the majority of relationships. But if I'm triggered, I get anxious again. And that's the thing. Is And that's why when we said earlier it's a lifelong process, it is because there have been studies. I forget which college did this study, but it was over a four-year period. And 70% of people at the end of four years had the same attachment style and 30% had changed. And it's usually because a significant relationship And it also has to do with how open-minded you are, how much secure modeling you've seen in your life so that you believe that there are other ways to interact. But so for me, I credit it a lot with having a lot of secure, long relationships. Like I think in my general relationships, I was secure for a while, but in romantic relationships, because they're so highly triggering and vulnerable, I wasn't secure. But with my husband, finally, like I started feeling like, oh, I can tackle this. I must, I can be secure in a romantic situation. So now, you know, little things with people I don't know very well trigger me when there's not enough trust established. But now, by and large, I'm surrounded by pretty secure people. And so that's really a big way that you become secure is by having secure relationships. I think there's a lot of stigma, especially in the personal growth community around being validated by people. It's not exactly the same thing. You know, we need to still validate ourselves and know we're worthy of speaking up, which is a big part of being secure. But the truth is all of us need acknowledgement to feel safe in relationships. So that's a big way I did it. There's also learning to self-soothe, which has to be a part of it, which is what avoidant people actually do and secure people do. They're able to calm themselves. But anxious people were taught to look to other people for that soothing. That's how we were programmed. So it's kind of a combo of finding secure relationships, but then also knowing enough about your style and the way that you tend to react when you're triggered to know how to speak to yourself the way you might a friend or the way you might a child to calm yourself down in those moments. I've seen in this work a tendency for anxious types to need more reparenting and inner child work and then for the more dismissive avoidant types needing more shadow work and like really like community shadow work so that you're sharing immediately shadow like that you have in order to like kind of be that vulnerable person that you're talking about and be validated by outsiders in in sharing those feelings. Yeah, I actually remember you talking about that on your last podcast that you oh, did. Oh, yeah, yeah. With, That's right. uh, I think yeah. her name was Rachel, right? Yes. <laughs> and I thought that was such an interesting way to think about it because I, I see that because, you know, the thing with avoidant people is they have this wound that they're kind of defective, like because they don't know how to be intimate and vulnerable. And a lot of times, you know, I used to think that that was because Like I used to think that avoidant people knew how they felt and just didn't feel safe sharing it. But the truth is a lot of the time they don't even know what they're feeling because they've taught themselves as a strategy to numb their feelings and to just cut themselves off from it. And I learned this really because I I had an avoidant client and most of my clients are anxious or fearful avoidance. And I had an avoidant client and she would mention being numb a lot. And I've read that in a lot of books, you know, that they report feeling numb. And when I said something about intimacy, she said, you know, I had to look up the word intimacy because I actually wasn't sure what you really even meant by that. Oh, my God. I know. My, my avoidance. I'm giving you so much love. Anyone listening? You're probably not listening. <laughs> I know. And, I, you know, like, I feel like there's a tendency, too, to, like, seem like we're demonizing avoidant people you know, but the truth is it's because avoidant people, and that's why I like what you said about shadow work, is that avoidant people are just less likely to dig deep. It's harder for them to acknowledge their own shadow. Anxious and fearful avoidance, we like are all about the self-work. We're like all about like, let's talk, let's talk, let's talk. And that's the different strategy. By and large, we like activating strategies and they like deactivating strategies. Okay, so everyone go get your find yourself a secure person. <laughs> 
<laughs> Get yourself a secure friend. <laughs> but I like that you're saying relationships plural because to me it's also – it's not just creating a secure relationship with myself. It's not just creating a secure relationship with my partner. It's also the feedback of having secure friends or at least friends that are willing to have the conversation about their attachment style in order to have like a dialogue and – that to me has made a huge, huge difference. Absolutely. And that's what's really cool also about attachment is that we focus on parent and child relationships and we focus on partnerships because they tend to be the most intimate relationships, you know, overall. But I don't know where I would be without my friends, especially being a single person for most of my adult life. Like my friends are my life and I have a lot of intimacy with them. And so we've definitely had attachment stuff come up because everyone has an attachment style. And like I said before, it's a relational science. So whoever you are, whoever you're relating to at that moment, whether it's someone in the you know supermarket or a friend or a lover, you're going to have a way that you relate to them. And it might change, which again, we can get into, but there's always that bond there, whatever, to whatever degree that bond exists. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Oh my gosh. So do we want to focus on fearful avoidance today? We can. You know, I I have found fearful avoidance to be super fascinating. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> when you said that that was your attachment style, I was like, <laughs> let's dig in. <laughs> I feel like I want to start first with the avoidance showing up in others styles and anxiety showing up in other styles. And then we can do the flip, the disorganized attachments now because we're shiny unicorns. Yeah. Well, I think it, it'll it all kind of come out as we talk about it, I think. Exactly. There we go. Um, I love it. Basically, I think a good way to think about true avoidance, as we were saying, they actually really need their space. They process by self-soothing. And so they actually need to put that's how they learn to process, right? As kids, they didn't feel safe sharing their feelings. You know, again, sometimes they do feel numb and they aren't really feeling the feelings as deeply as they could. But what processing they do do, they often do it on their own. And so they actually really need that space. Anxious people are not the same. Secure people are not the same. But with fearful avoidance, they tend to need that space, too. And I don't know if you can speak to this. Because it's a protective mechanism, but it's also how you're processing. It's just how you process. Yeah. I just got in a fight with my husband a couple weeks ago. And I literally, I was like, please leave this room. And as soon as he left, uh, reparenting mode just like kicked in. I like self-soothed, gave myself a big old hug, noted like it literally went down the points of like, I'm so proud of you for saying your needs. I'm so proud of you for voicing your actual feelings. And then I was like, I can't control anybody. I can't control anyone else. Like, let's just remind ourselves of that. But that space, I, I needed 10 minutes, came out of the room, totally different person. Totally, totally different person. Yeah. But see, that is really triggering for an anxious person who doesn't process that way. Anxious people need you in the room to talk it through to process. And so that's where that like friction comes in with anxious and avoidance a lot. You know, that anxious avoidant trap that everyone talks about is very real because you have conflicting processing styles. So when you can, in a healthy relationship like you and your husband, you're able to communicate, I need this space, it's not personal and you understand that, then when you're done with your 10 minutes, you can come back and both of you can process the way he needs to. But you need to be ready for that. But a lot of anxious people tend to think they're fearful avoidance. I People all the time tell me they think they're fear, fearful all avoidant. All the time. I, get, I hear this all the time. A lot of people tell me that they think they're fearful avoidant because they get avoidant. But as we talked about before, it's actually a very small percentage of people who are truly fearful avoidant. So what happens is that anxious people, we use something, technically all the styles use it, but I believe anxious people use it more. It's called protest behavior, essentially. I think it, avoidant people use it, but it looks different because their protest behavior is, is withdrawing or it's like being critical, but they do that anyway. So it's a little fuzzy, but it makes more sense when you think about it with anxious people because essentially protest behavior is protesting any change or withdrawal from the relationship, any kind of disconnection. That's why it's called protest behavior. So really what that means is it's 
strategies that anxious people use to get closer, which can be confusing because one of those strategies is avoiding the person for protection. And so it feels like avoidance and people think they have this fearful avoidance style. But I'll give you a good example, which I and I think a lot of people are very, at least I used to be very guilty of, especially in the dating world. So like, let's say I was seeing someone and I texted them and they text me back three hours later. Well, I'm hurt that they didn't text me back quickly. So then I don't respond for, you know, four hours. I'm avoiding them. But I'm not avoiding them because I need space like a true avoidant person. I'm avoiding them because I think if I respond too quickly, they won't want me because they'll think I'm needy or I'll be giving my power away because I responded too quickly when they took so long or I'm hurt that they took so long and so I want to get back at them. And so the reason this is an activating strategy is because oh, they notice I haven't responded, they're going to wonder why I haven't responded. They're going to chase me. Chasing, wanting people to chase you is, in a way, protest behavior because it's activating in that way. So whereas avoidant people actually deactivate, they use these deactivating strategies, they actually try to push you away. They actually don't want you to reach out for a little yeah. while. <laughs> me, an anxious person, if that person responded to me when I didn't respond back, I'd be like, okay, they still want, they, you know, they're worried that I haven't responded. They really still want to talk to me. Other forms of protest behavior are very activating strategies. So for instance, when I'm triggered by an avoidant person and they're not getting back to me and I text them a bazillion times and I call them, I'm like, that's all an activating strategy. And it's also protest behavior because I'm like, Something's changed in the relationship. You're not here. I'm feeling disconnected. And I'm just doing all the things I can to create that connection. So that's where I think it gets really fuzzy for people because they feel avoidant sometimes, and it, but it's protective. And so it really depends where that avoidance is coming from. That defines if it's more your style or not. I think that's so huge because I used to host – clubhouse rooms and all these people in the room would be like, I'm fearful avoidant. And we'd be like, raise your hand if you're fearful avoidant. And like literally the whole room. And I'm like, this is actually impossible. Like there's <laughs> percentage wise, there's, this isn't accurate. So I feel like this is so helpful to, to hear and know. And I'm so curious for like listeners who are like, oh yeah, I totally, totally resonate with protest behavior. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And people do. I mean, so hardcore. When you start realizing that what you do all the time is actually like there's a reason for it and that other people do it, I feel like people are just like, oh, my God, I understand. I understand myself so much more. <laughs> you know. Um, and like I have clients who are like, yeah, my PB is showing up again or, you know, like they, it's just like their shorthand now because they know when they're being all pro I'm being protesty right now and I know it. <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. So for clients that are exhibiting protest behavior, PB, as we cannot call it, what do you like, what do you recommend or what do you coach them through? How do you coach them through it? So I coach all my clients to try and use effective communication, which means the whole process with becoming more secure and with working with attachment theory is first understanding what attachment is and what the styles are so you can get a sense of your style and you start noticing the key characteristics of each style and how it shows up and kind of observing the things that particularly trigger you. And so each time you start noticing you're triggered, okay, then you say, I'm being triggered right now. Why? And it's usually because some need is not being met. So for instance, in our example before, I felt triggered when someone didn't respond to me. That's a big one for anxious people. When we're not responded to, it's like very anxiety provoking because we need that response as validation that you're still interested because our core wound is abandonment. And so we need to know that you aren't going somewhere because we did something wrong. We're very self-blaming. And so, okay, my need is I need to be responded to. You haven't responded to me yet. So the next step is then how am I able to communicate this in a way to the person so that they know I need responses? You know, so I get actually triggered by this just from sometimes like work emails. I mean, I also come from a mother who's very customer service oriented. So like she gets very angry at bad customer service and I inherited that. 
<laughs> Thanks, mom. So especially if I'm paying someone for something and they don't respond to me within 48 hours, I can get real angry. And I know it's because I'm being triggered. I mean, I do think they should respond within 48 hours just as a professional. But look, things happen and the person isn't always as evil as we make them out to be when we're triggered, which is also a tendency of anxious people. So I have to say to myself, okay, how can I communicate to this person right now in an effective way that's fair, that I'm not blaming them necessarily, but to get my needs met? And so often, especially in this you know, kind of professional, I'm your client situation, I'll say, can you please confirm receipt of this email? For me, that's a way to let them know I need to know that you got this. I need to know where you're at. That's how I'm able to get my need met in that situation. So it really depends on the situation, but it's about knowing why you're being triggered, what your need is there, and then what is a way I can communicate it. And, you know, communication in itself is an entire six-week client session for a lot of us. Learning to, like, really honestly communicating can feel so painful and hard for a lot of people. So that in and of itself is something to explore, but that's kind of how you start getting your way to more security because especially in intimate relationships, the more that you bring your needs up and take that risk of feeling afraid, really the more you're able to see if this person can meet them. And if they can meet them, then they're worth kind of keeping around and that helps you start building more security because you build that trust that when I bring my needs up, the person's going to care. They're going to acknowledge them and they're going to try to meet them. And if they're not doing that, it's more a reflection on them and the nature of who they are, or at least the way that you relate to them. Like, you know, if, if someone is not meeting your needs, that's just a message for you. Like, maybe this isn't the best supportive person for me right now, you know? I love that. That is so beautiful. Asking for your needs being that is like the best. It takes so much to get there. I'm just laughing because I remember like four years ago, maybe more, I was in my therapist's office with my husband and we're both like, she's talking about how we need to communicate. She's literally drawing a diagram on the board of like our family system. And she's like, okay, now you just need to communicate your needs. And we both look at each other and my husband is like, but if I communicate my needs, that means I'm needy. And I'm like, but... I can't have needs. (laughs) Yes. I mean, it sounds simple when you say it. Just just communicate your needs. Just communicate your needs. There's so much stigma around it. There's so – yeah. It's a lot to unpack sometimes. It is. It is. But you know what? I think one need at a time, one like just knowing that that's the direction you're headed and not necessarily getting stuck on like, fuck, I didn't do it that one time or – uh, I blew past that one need or that he I, he didn't meet my need in that one moment. It must be over. It's just like it, it's just like the longer term path, like one foot in front of the other. Exactly. You're not going to be perfect. And, you know, we're just not going to be perfect ever. And who wants to be with perfect people anyway? You know? uh, thank you. Uh, thank you. I remember in the beginning when I was like asking for my needs, it was like the roughest, <laughs> jumbliest thing. I'm like, I need this from you right now. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, see, for me, I would just cry. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of anxious people or a lot of insecure types who are not used to speaking their needs, it's so foreign that we do. I I found that with a lot of people. Like we just cry a lot in the beginning of relationships because it's so hard to speak our truth, but we know we have to. But the more you do it, I promise it gets easier. I promise. If you have the right partner, it will get easier. It'll get easier. And just cry it out. Cry it out. Just cry it out. Yeah, it's worth it. Love a good cry. (laughs) Love a good cry. Hey there. I hope you're enjoying this week's episode. I know I am. If you're enjoying the Lit AF podcast, I humbly ask you to make a financial contribution to the Lit AF tip jar. Your support will help make this podcast happen. Financial contributions help to cover costs like podcast hosting site, podcast recording software, and it also helps us to pay our amazing, talented podcast editor that brings us these sweet episodes every single week. Monthly and one-off donation options are available, and we've got some sweet thank you gifts for everyone participating. 
If you're interested in making your financial contribution, please visit sarahcohan.com forward slash tip jar. That's S-A-R-A-H-C-O-H-A-N.com forward slash tip jar. Now back to this week's episode. Thank you so much. Okay, so that's how avoidance shows up in other styles. How does anxiety show up in the other styles? Yeah, so I think it's that, and actually I had another podcast host ask me this very question and I had never thought about it before. But when I reflected on it, I realized, yeah, avoidant people, I think, have anxiety around sharing their needs, around intimacy in general. I actually think that that's what's so fascinating about it. Avoidant people have more anxiety about connecting than anxious people do. We naturally want to connect and our anxiety comes from the lack of connection. Whereas avoidant people get anxious at the idea of connecting because vulnerability is not safe for them, you know? And so I think that's what's happening when they have to go process. Like maybe you can speak to this as a fearful avoidant, but when you think about that incident with your husband, for instance, and you needed that 10 minutes, would you say you felt some anxiety that you felt like you couldn't communicate with him in that moment that you had to kick him out of the room? Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Any Anytime I'm asking, yeah, for a need or like if there's a more heated conversation, <laughs> straight up, I just think I'm socially anxious like all the time. Like <laughs> I would never admit that I'm one of the most bubbliest, like outgoing people ever. And I have so much social anxiety. Like, Well, I find that anxious people, because you have, you know, part ang- anxious in your the way you relate to people. Um, I find that anxious styles tend to just generally have more anxiety in life, I think. And then socially speaking, that makes sense to me because the whole thing with being anxious is we want validation and we want to be liked and we want to do things right. And so we are socially anxious because we care, you know? So even though we're also really bubbly and because we're empathetic, like we're really tuned in with other people's needs because we were programmed to be always waiting to know what the other person's needs are. So like we're very sensitive and so we're warm and we get along well with people. So that's why, yeah, you're bubbly, but it's like this worry that the person's not going to like me and putting all this out there, but are they going to like me? Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Big time. It's a mind you're fuck, in, honestly. You're in my head. Um, it's like you're in my head. You know my feelings. You know my scary, my biggest worries. Because <laughs> I have felt them all too. <laughs> uh, we're so human. <laughs> I've also heard that at like a resting body rate that dismissive avoidant actually tends to have more anxiety in their nervous system at all times, which is insane to me. That makes sense. They just don't show it. They don't. They just don't show it. It's all bottled up. There's no mm-hmm. outlet. <laughs> and that's pro- that's honestly probably why. It's also like I've heard the reason there's a theory that men die earlier than women is because they aren't socialized to express their feelings as much. It literally weighs on their heart that they can't express themselves. And so women, because we bond more easily with other women and we talk about our feelings a lot, we're able to get it out. It's societally acceptable for us to process emotions. Yes, exactly. Uh, I know. That's why ladies, you got to, not just ladies, just anyone who's in a relationship with a man or a cis man or someone who's been socialized to be a man, you got to push them a little to to talk, even if they're resistant. Oh my gosh. It's going to be okay, guys. It's going to be okay. Please don't die early. <laughs> uh, okay. So I'm, I'm curious. No system is perfect. Where do you see the attachment theory system kind of fail or not work in 100%? I think that it's really just that Attachment can't explain everything about relationships because we're humans with full identities and our different parts of our identities relate to people in different ways, right? So even just the examples we were just using about, you know, cis men and cis women, right? A lot of times people think that men are avoidant and women are anxious. And that's not the case. It's actually pretty evenly divided. But because of the way that we are socialized, I think that's why it's like you have 
you know, um, attachment. But then there's these other layers on top of it, like social layers, economic layers, racial layers of the way that you identify and the way that you might learn to think about things based on your culture. Maybe in your culture, it's not healthy for you to express yourself. And so I think it's not that something's wrong with attachment in that way, but people sometimes they knock it because they think it's not explaining this or that. Sometimes I think people also think that attachment should explain mental health. And that's kind of a hard connection to explain. Um, I got I used to get that question a lot. Like if you have a certain kind of mental health disorder, do you tend to be a certain kind of attachment style? And I apparently learned that people with ADHD sometimes are fearful avoidant, but that's not necessarily always the case. You know, it depends. I think that if you have a parent who had a mental health disorder, well, yeah, that's going to affect your attachment style because it means they're probably not always emotionally available. But it's not because, you know, a lot of times people think if you have a certain attachment style, it's related to your mental health. But everyone has an attachment style regardless of your mental health. But so just like anything, like I said, it's it's relational, so different things impact it. So I think it gets confusing because it is this general framework, but it's also a malleable framework. I am classically an anxious person. I show most of those signs, and in times of being triggered, I show up as anxious. However, anxiety can create more anxiety. So when I have friends who are anxious, sometimes it makes me avoidant because it's relational. But if they're being avoidant, then I'll be anxious, you know? <laughs> oh, thank so, God. <laughs> we're going to write it back to normal. <laughs> you know, like, let's just, I'm comfortable here. So that's really what comes to mind is just that I think it can be hard to navigate because it changes, you know, and because there's several different factors. But I think that if you understand the basic framework of it, it makes a lot of sense. And the more you understand it, the more those specific situations start to make sense. That totally makes sense. I love that. I love that. And I think that that's interesting about the mental health question that you're getting. It's an obvious question, but it's also like, you <laughs> You can still have any different type of mental health diagnosis and identify with a different attachment. But I will say, I really like appreciated what Rachel said on your last podcast about your fearful avoidance style and that she doesn't like saying someone is a certain style like I am anxious or I am fearful avoidant because really it's about the strategies you use. And I do struggle with that myself because it feels so defining. And I think that people really struggle with that. Like, oh, no, I'm anxious. What does that mean about me? I'm damaged or I'm fearful avoidant or I'm avoidant. I'm damaged. And I really like putting in that light that it's it's not that you are this thing and it doesn't mean you can't change. It means that you've been programmed to use these kinds of strategies. Yeah. Programmed to use strategies. Strategies sounds way more easy to approach and change rather than an identity. <laughs> exactly. It's not an identity, but when we say you have that style, it means more often than not, that's the style or the strategy you're going to use. See, I love that. Have you seen clients with their attachment style showing up or their attachment strategy showing up like in the workplace? Oh, yeah. Totally. For instance, someone and I were talking about recently how avoidant people we think don't make as good assistants for like – like I used to be an executive assistant to a TV producer and like that entire job is anticipating someone's needs. And so anxious people are really great at anticipating needs or fearful avoidant people because we have been programmed to pay attention to other people's needs. If you're anxious, you know, go ahead and try and be an executive assistant. You will kill that shit. It's also like people who are really type A. Like I actually talked about this on one of my recent podcasts, but so my husband and I legally got married in January, but we're having a what? wedding in November. Thank oh you. Um, you know, pandemic and stuff. And I don't know what style my coordinator was or is or whatever, but she's no longer my coordinator because she was not type A enough for me. And I think she was also really busy, but just personality wise, I think she's kind of avoidant, just marches to the beat of her own drum. And me being anxious I cannot have you not responding. I mean, we've already talked about it. I get very triggered when I'm not responded to and I'm paying you money. And so in that situation, like I knew, no, I need a type A anxious type wants to please me, you know, wedding coordinator who's going to be on top of this shit, pay attention to every single detail, anticipate my needs, know, understand how I'm feeling. 
you know, and so I let that one go and I have a new one and it's a total different situation. And it took a lot for me to admit that that was a need of mine because the woman who was my coordinator is also the point person at the venue. So she has to stay involved. And so there was all this fear that she would sabotage my wedding and all this other stuff. So yeah, so I do think like it it translates in those ways. It translates in the way that you relate to your coworkers. It translates in the way that you're going to get bothered by your coworkers or not. You know, anxious people and fearful avoidant people struggle to let things go more than secure people. I mean, with avoidant people, it things probably bother them, but they don't express it the same way. They just will kind of ghost you or be flaky-ish. But that also affects the workplace, you know? Big time. Big time. In my last week's podcast or two weeks ago podcast, I talk about how I look to my bosses without realizing it as my parents. <laughs> totally. Yeah. That makes so much sense. And I just I put so many different expectations and this core wound of fearful avoidant core wound of betrayal like really rings true for me in the workplace because I'm just like waiting for like you to either leave me or um, do something that like really feels like you're betraying me or not seeing my work. Like it's so, so much. And I'm already on the attack instead of being from like the I'm here, let's talk about it, you know. Yeah. I mean all styles – other than secure, all insecure styles struggle with trust, but it is extra for the fearful avoidant because they felt like they couldn't trust ever. You know, like there's always that fear of betrayal. And so it's very hard to give the other person the benefit of the doubt that they're coming from an honest or fair place where they're considering your needs. So that makes a lot of sense. And especially in a boss dynamic I mean, that makes so much sense. They'd be like a parent because there is that power dynamic there and we, you know, need their validation and we want them to like us and et cetera, et cetera. 100%. And I just like already have this very anarchist mode. I'm so sorry to any boss out there. I know you're not listening, but like <laughs> just putting it out in the universe. Like I thought I was the best employee and looking back, I'm like, I just never respected you. I just like... <laughs> I just kind of pushed all of your feelings aside and oh, yeah, there's a lot there. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? Like there are people who will go lifetimes and never admit that. So note that you are on a growth path that you can even say that. There we go. In this lifetime, I'm able to say that. Yeah. 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 It's a lot. Yeah. But it's so cool. I think it's really interesting when you take the attachment theory lens and look bigger picture like to literally what you're talking about of like communicating in the workplace or communicating with clients, bosses, like it goes so far. I think I even see it showing up with my dog. <laughs> I think absolutely. <laughs> I think most animals are like pretty really anxious. Sorry, most dogs are pretty anxious. Cats I would say cats are avoidant. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> Birds, I don't really know. Maybe secure. <laughs> I don't have one. I can see the kind of dismissive avoidance showing up with me and my dog of like, you need too much. And like, I need space. Like, take a minute. It's a lot. It is. It's funny you say that, though, because I actually always talk about how pets are a really good example of how we can learn to love securely. Because by and large, we are more forgiving of them when they mess up. We love them unconditionally, even if we do get mad at them. You know, and so it's like, how can we use that way that we think about our pets to think about the other people in our lives? You know, that's so beautiful. Yeah, my life has definitely changed since I got a dog for sure. I feel way more open to love. They're just the balls of love, you know? I mean, even when they are needy and annoying, like they're so cute. You know, that's why they make babies and animals so cute so that you have to love them. It's really smart. <laughs> That's so really good. smart. Whoever thought of that <laughs> knew what they were doing. Really nailed it. <laughs> really nailed it. Kind of genius. Okay. So I have one last question, which is, and you might have already covered it, but if you have anything to add, I feel like you really did cover it. But what has helped your clients to get to secure? I will say repetition. You know, it's that's why, you know, so many people like this is the most common question I get, which is like, okay, I took your quiz and I'm anxious. How do I fix my attachment style? And there's a lot of people who like think that because they have this insecure attachment style, it needs to be fixed. 
So like I'm kind of like mm, when I think about people who are like constantly obsessed with becoming secure because I think that it's really about acceptance and that's how you become secure. Once you kind of understand this is how I show up, this is how I react, that's when you can make the active choice to react differently. But you kind of have to accept where you are first. It's kind of like when you're going up a flight of stairs, right? Like you don't just suddenly get to the top step. You have to climb the steps in between. And you're grateful for the steps in between to get you to the top step, right? So I think the frustrating thing about working on security and this lot has to do a lot with that concept of perfectionism again, I think, is that, okay, well, now I know about this, so I should be able to do it. And if I mess up, then I suck and I'm never going to be secure. Or I've been studying and working on this for so long and yet I'm still getting triggered. And it's like, yeah, that's the nature of it. You're going to still get triggered. It doesn't stop you from getting triggered. The security comes in when you realize you're triggered, you understand what triggered you, and you're able to make the adjustment to act differently about it. But it doesn't mean you're not going to get triggered. You're human, and you've been programmed this way most of your life. You're going to get triggered that way. And that's why it's unfortunate, the stigma of feeling needy. Humans are dependent creatures. Like codependency, when you can't function, is one thing, right? And you literally can't function without the other person. But it's very natural to be dependent. In fact, it's a survival mechanism. And attachment theory is kind of John Bowlby was inspired by Darwin in the sense that it's not just about procreation that we find partners. That's a part of it. But we actually find significant others or we attach to parents and children in this way because back in the day, people who weren't able to attach closely with other people who didn't have the same attachment system, like early humans didn't all have the same levels of vasopressin and oxytocin, which are basically what help us want to bond and like be close with people. The people who didn't have that died off more. They were the lone wolves of the pack who they just weren't able to survive as much because naturally when you have other people looking out for your survival, you have a higher chance of surviving. So it's literally biologically programmed into us to depend on people. But in our hyper independent society that values independence so much, we've made it so that any expression of needing someone is weakness. And that's why there's so much shame and shadow that comes up when we feel like we have to express a vulnerability. And so a lot of my work is around helping people feel more comfortable with vulnerability as the path to intimacy. Because to me, that's where the real magic is, is when you can be vulnerable with someone and they use it as a kind of permission to be vulnerable themselves. That's where intimacy happens, as I'm sure you know, being in a marriage. Like, that's what actually makes you truly fall in love with someone, not because it's perfect. I feel like I'm getting slightly away from my uh, your original question, but I think that my point is, is that security is a process. And it's something that every little conversation, every interaction, every time you speak your needs, that gets you closer to being secure. And if you're with people who aren't open to your needs or are judging you or not making you feel safe, well, that's not the right relationship for you. And that's not going to help you become more secure. And again, in the wellness world, you know, a lot of people have this idea that I'm going to fix myself on my own. Like, I need to take responsibility for myself. And that might be true in a lot of ways. Yes, we have to take responsibility for our feelings and our actions. Absolutely. But ultimately, relationships are relational. There's another person involved. And it's not all on you to be perfect. It's on you to do your part. And it's on them to do their part. And that combination is what is going to help you become more secure. Ultimately, you can try and do it as much as you want on your own. But you know, a lot of people are like, I've done so much self-work and then I'm triggered in this relationship. It's like, well, yeah, you've done as much self-work so that you have the tools so that when you're in that relationship and you get triggered, you know how to <laughs> deal with yourself. But that doesn't mean you're not going to get triggered by another human being who you have no control over, you know? Uh, I have to remind myself all the time secure people are triggered. Yeah, secure people get triggered. Like they're not perfect. They have feelings, you know, they just deal with them differently. They're less likely to stay angry. They're more likely to see the good in you or give you the benefit of the doubt. They're more likely to express it or ask you to express it. So it's not that they don't have feelings. They just are not as extreme in them because they're able to process them and express them. Anxious and fearful avoidant people and avoidant people tend to hold in their feelings a lot more, which makes it feel much bigger when it's time to express them. 
That is so beautiful. Repetition. Repetition. It's a process and it's about integrating it. And you got to surround yourself with people who support you in that exploration and that journey, you know? Oh, so beautiful. Thank you so much. You're giving me renewed hope in my attachment journey. Yeah, it's really exciting. I'm so happy. That's my goal in life. So I'm glad. Yeah. Yeah. And like we said at the beginning, it's just had such a profound effect in my life. And so anyone that's listening that hasn't yet accepted like the attachment, like keep working on it. Like you'll get there eventually, you know? Absolutely. And if you don't know your style, go to my quiz. I think you're linking it in the show notes. Yes. Tell us about it. Yeah. So my quiz, I like to put this caveat because I have done this quiz over so many times and sometimes this happens. So if it happens to you, reach out to me and we'll talk it out. But as I mentioned in the beginning, anxious and secure people, there's a very fine line sometimes between them. And so a lot of times I find that people, you know, it's a spectrum. So sometimes people who kind of maybe were anxious much when they were younger and they've slowly become more secure, they tend to show up as secure on the quiz, but they still have anxious tendencies. So if you relate to the qualities of anxiousness and you get secure, totally reach out to me and we'll talk it through. Um, I find people who are still very much in their anxiousness will get anxious. And I find most fearful avoidance are pretty spot on on my quiz. I don't know how many avoidant people take my quiz, so I can't give you a statistic on that. But my quiz is as accurate as I can possibly make it. I, I try really hard to make it accurate. So, you know, if you have feedback, let me know. But that's my caveat. I would say just answer it honestly as much as you can based on times you've felt triggered or kind of how you generally feel overall. Like being as honest as possible with yourself is the best way to get the most accurate answer. Love that. And we're going to link that quiz below so you can find it and take it and then give your feedback to Taryn. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the first step, like, is just knowing, okay, this is my tendency. So what does that mean? And then I have all these other resources to help you understand, like, what are the key characteristics of someone who is anxious or fearful, avoidant or avoidant? You know, what does that mean about me? How does it show up in my life? And then kind of working with me is how you start integrating it and learning how to deal with it. Like we said, methods of communicating. I have a communication mini course all about how to use attachment theory to communicate more effectively. Oh, amazing. So amazing. All the things are on my website. Uh, So how can listeners follow along with what you're up to? Yeah. So you can always go to my website, truerlove.com. It has everything there. I have a podcast that I drop every two weeks. I interview guests anonymously about anything relationship related, but oftentimes, most of the time, attachments coming up when we talk about it. So that's every other episode. And then in between, I do reflection episodes because I noticed I had a lot of thoughts and feelings since recording. And so I do those single episodes that are a little bit shorter. And so if you join my mailing list, you will get the updates on those. And again, that's at truerlove.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at underscore truer love underscore. Don't forget the underscores where I keep everyone posted and have little tidbits of information each week there as well. That she's got good stuff. Check it out. The podcast is amazing. It's so cool. You like you get to listen to her coaching someone through a situation. Like it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. I feel like people are more prone to be honest when it's anonymous. And I really wanted people to understand like what it feels like to be coached by me and to understand like how attachment makes such a difference in all the situations. Because as you can see from listening today, it's mind-blowing and it affects so much about our relationships that we don't even realize. And I like to say it's like putting on glasses after years of blurry vision, just like suddenly everything's in focus and makes more sense. Totally. Oh, I love that so much. Yeah. And you can also book a free clarity call with me where we just generally talk about what issues you're having and kind of what steps we would take to address your attachment stuff and your shadows and get you on the path to having more secure tools. Go book the call. I love it. Go book the call. Taryn, thank you so much for being here today. This conversation was so fun. It really was. Thank you for having me. I am so happy to be here. Yeah. We should do it again sometime. I agree. 
I agree. You know, can't we could chat go on for up. hours about it. <laughs> I know. Um, I'll tell you about the dismissive side or the avoidant side. <laughs> it's great. I know. I'm going to come to you now when I have like dismissive avoidant questions. I'll be like, how do you feel about this? I'll be like, they're shutting down. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, it's so good. Well, cool. thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for having me. It's been amazing. That's it for today's show. Thank you so, so, so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed. If you have a moment and you're in the Apple Podcast app, please rate and review the show. I could really use all the ratings I can get. And please share this episode with a friend that may benefit from it. Of course, hit subscribe to keep up with new weekly episodes. And if you're interested in supporting the show and being part of the Lit AF community, Join our Patreon by visiting sarahcohan.com forward slash tip jar. That's S-A-R-A-H-C-O-H-A-N.com forward slash tip jar. Thank you again for listening. Please stay lit, lit AF, and I hope to see you back here next week.